I'm sure many of you are familiar with the very popular television show, 24. It is no longer playing, but it ran through nine seasons. And when it was running, it was one of the most popular TV shows on the planet. 24 tells the story of Jack Bauer, played by Kiefer Sutherland. And Jack is a counterterrorism federal agent for the U.S. And every week, it seems like he is saving the world from imminent collapse. In the first season, uh, Jack Bauer is charged with protecting a presidential candidate from an assassination plot. And he's been given this responsibility because in the uncertain world of espionage, he possesses, that, he possesses a very rare character trait, the trait of integrity. And that trait of integrity spans throughout the series of 24. Now, for those of you who watched this show, or even for those of you who didn't, if you remember the first show of the first season, Jack's integrity was already put to the test because he turned in other federal agents for bribery. He turned them into the authorities. And instead of being lauded and honored, his own comrades turned against him. In fact, his immediate boss came down hard on him. And his boss told him and tried to persuade Jack not to be so idealistic, not to be so honest on his job. At which point he and his boss had a huge confrontation. It was an intense one and he was angry. And so after that meeting, he explained his anger to his closest partner. And here's what he said. Jack Bauer says, you can look the other way once. And it's no big deal, except it makes it easier for you to compromise the next time. And pretty soon, that's all you're doing, compromising, because that's how you think things are done. You know those guys I blew the whistle on? You think they were the bad guys. They weren't the bad guys. They were just like you and me, except they compromised once. It can be said similarly of the Christian life. We see other believers as they interact in this world. And we see them falter. We see them compromised. We see them that they are not standing up for their convictions. And we judge them. And we say that they are bad Christians. Or perhaps they aren't spiritual. Or they weren't walking with the Lord. They aren't bad people. The problem was they compromised once. And they saw that nothing happened to them. And they compromised and nothing happened to them. And they thought that is how one lives the Christian life. Trying their best to live out the principles of scriptures. And yet in areas where we find it difficult, it's okay to fudge a little bit. And that may not be the lives of other people. That may be your life. And how does the world view us when we live lives like that? The world will wonder why we don't hold to our convictions. They see how we can be manipulated. They see how we can be pressured into doing things that we're not supposed to do. A lot of the fault is on us. Because often believers dig a hole so deep for themselves that they cannot get out of it. 
They do not stand on convictions. We compromise when it suits our needs. This morning, we want to take a look at the story of a man, a true story, who doesn't stand on his convictions. And because he doesn't do so, he gains a terrible notoriety, a notoriety, a, a notoriety that he will hold on to for the rest of history. I'd like you to turn with me this morning in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We're going to be like, taking a look at Luke, chapter 22, verse 66, to chapter 23, verse 25. We encourage you to bring your Bibles or download a Bible app. And if you can't afford a Bible, our church would be very happy to buy you one. We continue our sermon series entitled Imperfect. How we can encourage a world that is imperfect to find perfection in Jesus Christ. Here in Luke chapter 22, verses 66 to chapter 23, verse 25, we're going to see the progression of how one gets themselves into more trouble than we should be in. Because one doesn't stand on their conviction and compromises when they can. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 66. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led Jesus into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Continuing from our sermon last week, if you remember, Jesus was, after his arrest at Gethsemane, was put on an illegal trial in the house of the high priest. And now he was being transported to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious high council. And as he was being transported, we mentioned last week that his eyes met the eyes of Peter, who was out in the courtyard and had denied him three times. Now Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, and they asked him, Jesus, are you the Christ? For those of you who do not know, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. I can't assume everyone knows that. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, meaning the anointed one, the chosen one. And that's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. So they were asking him, Jesus, are you the anointed one? Are you the chosen one? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, if I answer you, you wouldn't believe me and you wouldn't let me go. And then Jesus says the following verse 69 to 71. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Jesus affirmed to the Sanhedrin that he indeed is the Son of God and would be going back to heaven soon. And the Jewish council condemned him for claiming to be the Messiah. Now I want to stop here, and I think that many of us, especially we grew up in the church, have the assumption that everyone who claims to be the Messiah that the Jewish leaders don't agree with would definitely be put to death. But according to Jewish law, even at that time, you don't put to death someone who claims to be someone else. The theologian Edward Kessler notes, to claim to be the Messiah, if it was an offense against Judaism at all, was certainly not 
an offense against Jewish law for which Jesus could have been put to death. The Gospels say that Jesus' claim to be the Messiah was blasphemy. But in Jewish law, blasphemy was to curse God using God's sacred name. And Jesus did nothing of the sort. In fact, throughout Jewish history, many men have claimed to be the Messiah, to bring the kingdom of God to earth. But they weren't arrested. They weren't killed. In fact, in many cases, like the Maccabees, they were celebrated. But why were these religious leaders so afraid of Jesus? Why did they want him dead? They were intimidated by Jesus because Jesus spoke truth. And his teachings of inner righteousness versus their focus on outward show hit them right over the head and in the heart. And that's why a lot of people don't like Jesus in today's day and age. They like him as a great teacher, but they hate him and they dislike him greatly. Because if you read the words of Jesus, it speaks to the heart. It is talking about a change in the inward righteousness that we live out. You know, this was a ridiculous charge for Jesus to be put to death simply because he claimed to be someone is as ridiculous as me claiming to be skinny, although fat, and then being arrested for it. It's as ridiculous if your children were running around claiming to be Superman or Batman and they being arrested and put to death. It is an absurd charge. And any common thinking person who knew the law would know that this was a ridiculous charge. But those religious leaders of that day were bent on disposing of Jesus. And since the religious authority had no power to carry out capital punishment, they had to defer to the Roman governor, the man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow, note this, perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. This is how unfair and how unjust they were. They not only accused Jesus before Pilate of claiming to the Messiah, but they included trumped-up charges of Jesus supposedly inciting insurrection against the Romans by falsely telling people and Pilate specifically that Jesus forbid the paying of taxes and called himself the king in direct challenge to Roman law. And yet Jesus did no such thing. In fact, if you remember the teachings of Christ in the gospel, you will see that Jesus actually taught submission to the government. Jesus actually taught paying taxes, rendering to the Caesar what is his. That was in the context of paying taxes. And yet these religious leaders were deliberately skewing the charges. Verse 3. Then Pilate asked Jesus, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. You know, even Pilate, smart man, could see through false charges. He doesn't ask Jesus whether he started an insurrection or rebellion. Pilate cut through the chase and simply focused on what annoyed these leaders. Are you the Messiah? To which Jesus acknowledged, yes. And I want you to note the important words of Pilate in verse 4. So Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowd, I've got this underlined in my Bible, 
I find no fault in this man. When the evidence was placed before Pilate, his conviction, his conclusion, his ruling based on evidence presented was that there was nothing wrong with this man. Highlight that in your Bibles, would you? In Pilate was the full authority of the Roman Empire in the land of Palestine. He could have freed Jesus at that moment. He could have done what was right. And although may not be very popular, it was well within his right. And no one could do anything about it. No one could coerce him. And even if the religious leaders were a bit angry, what could they do? Pilate had the full force of the Roman garrison stationed at the Antonia Fortress. The Praetorian was under his command. The centurions were under his command. Who in the world would speak against a ruling of Pilate? And he knew that. Yes, he was in a hole, per se. If he let Jesus go, he would have made some Jewish leaders angry. But what could they do? But here's the problem of Pilate. He was in a hole. He was in a quandary. But he continued to dig. And we're going to see the progression of what happened as he continues to dig until he digs a hole so deep he can't get out of it. And for whatever reason, Pilate doesn't stop. One can wonder, maybe he just simply wanted to be liked. He was insecure. He wanted to be liked. Maybe he was a man who was always looking out for his political job. He always had a political angle. The angle by which he would be one who comes out on top. Maybe this was a man who always wanted to compromise, to come to a win-win solution so that everyone would be happy. He was a man without convictions. He knew what the right thing to do was. So verse 4, very clear. I find no fault in this man. But he doesn't do it. He dances all around it. And before we condemn Pilate, I'm going to have you put yourself in the shoes of Pilate because we all do the same thing. How does Pilate dig his hole deeper? Let's continue, verse 5 to verse 7. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Ah, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Let me give, give you a, a bit of a historical background. This is not the Herod that was the Herod at the time of Jesus' birth. The Herod at the time of Jesus' birth was Herod the Great. He was a great man. That's why he was called Herod the Great. Herod was not a full-blooded Jew. He was a distant relative of the Jewish people. He was an Edomian. And Herod wanted to curry the favor of the Jewish people. And so what did he do? He expanded and rebuilt the second Jewish temple. And he did that, and he expanded Ezra's temple. And it was so beautiful that all across the ancient world, you would see no finer a structure than what they would term as Herod's temple. He built up a lot of good graces amongst the Jewish people, but boy, he burned it all in one act. What did he do? He had all the Jewish babies, two years and younger, 
be killed. You don't curry a lot of favor when you kill everyone's two-year-old and below. Well, Herod died, and the Roman government didn't want one of his children to be like Herod, his father. And so when he died, the Romans split the land of Palestine and put a few of his sons in power. In the area of Galilee, up north, he gave, uh, the Romans gave Herod Antipater, also known as Herod Antipas, his nickname, that region to govern. And so he bore the title Herod Tetrarch, Tetrarch meaning ruler of a quarter, ruler of a quarter of his daddy's land. Well, this Herod Antipas was a political expert. He knew how to maneuver. And what do you do to curry the favor of the Roman government? You build the city and name it after the emperor. And that's what he did. Right along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, he erected the city of Tiberias. And he calls it Tiberias in honor of his patron Roman emperor, Tiberius. Now, why do I tell you that background? I tell you that background because this is the man to whom Pilate is going to pass on the quote-unquote problem of Jesus. Jesus has spent the vast majority of his earthly ministry in the region of the Galilee. And so Pilate thought, you know what? I don't have to make a decision. I'm going to let Herod Antipas who happens to be in town, make this decision. It's under his jurisdiction. This is a Galilean. And by the way, Pilate wasn't doing Herod any favor. Pilate didn't like Herod very much. Pilate could have made that decision right there and then. But he passed the buck and he gave the decision to someone else. And from this action, we see the progression of how he digs a deeper hole. Number one, if you're taking notes... He doesn't have any convictions. He has no convictions, number one. We dig our own holes deeper. We run down the slippery slope towards sin when we don't have any convictions. Herod was one to whom Pilate passed the problem of Jesus. Pilate could have dealt with that problem there and then. But he says, I'll try to get the opinion of Herod. You know, here's what Pilate was doing. He knew it wasn't the popular decision, so he wanted someone else to take the blame. And we do the same thing also. When we know what we need to do, we don't do it. But instead, what do we do? We ask someone else, what would you do if you were in my situation, right? We ask that a lot. And why do we ask that question to a question we know the right answer to? We ask the question, what would you do? Because we're hoping that that leader or that person or our parents or that person in authority will give us an answer that we like. And if they give us an answer that we like, we'll say, okay then. I don't have to do what I think is right. I'll do what they advise. And if anything happens to me, I can tell God, well, God, I was just listening to advice. That is the very definition of having no convictions. Now, there's nothing wrong with seeking advice from someone else. But when it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to something that you know for certainty what you need to do, this is a very dangerous question to ask. To ask of others, what should I do when you yourself know what you need to do? 
Instead, we should be asking ourselves the question, what should I do in light of what the Scriptures say? What should I be doing in light of what the Bible tells us how I am to act? You see, many of our problems in today's world, many of the questioning of our mind, can be answered if we only look into the Scriptures. You know, one of the most unique church names I've ever come across is actually a church in Marikina. You know what the church's name is? It's a great name. The church's name is What the Bible Says Community Church. Isn't that a great church name? What the Bible Says Community Church. So I bet you if you ask any member of that church, they would reply, what does the Bible say? Any questions? How would you act? Well, what does the Bible say? That's the name of their church. I thought about changing the name of our church. But it's, it's, it's really long, though. But what a great name. Isn't that a great name? Men and women in today's generation, our world, myself, we don't have a lot of convictions. We waver with the wind. And that's how the world manipulates us. Where should our convictions lie? It should lie in the Word of God. Here was a man, Pilate, who had no problems passing the buck to someone else. Because if Herod ruled another way, he could say, well, he was a Galilean. And Herod ruled on it, and so I'm just acting on Herod's advice. That's what we all do. We always pass the buck. We toss the ball of responsibility to someone else. Now you say, Pastor, ooh, pretty strong stuff this morning. Yes, we mess up here and there, but Pastor, most of the time we're pretty good. 99% of our Christian life is lived, living out Christian principles. Maybe we have a 1%, 2% failure rate. I think God will understand. He's a forgiving God. It doesn't hurt anyone. That's how a lot of us have justified the Christian life in our mind. As long as generally I'm living out a Christian life better than others and with a high percentage, then it's okay. That 1%, 2%, God is gracious. It's okay. I want you to think again. I came across an article. Uh, in fact, it's statistics. It goes something like this. It's from the U.S. And the statistics was what you'd get if 99% was good enough. If you were right 99% of the time and you only had a 1% failure rate, here's what would happen. If the U.S. Postal Service had a 99% delivery rate and only 1% of failure to deliver your mail, 1.7 million pieces of first-class mail would be lost every day. Imagine that. I don't even want to know what the percentage here in the Philippines is. Can you imagine if your letter was one of those 1.7 million pieces of first-class mail that was lost and the recipient never got it, and you go to the postal office and you say, I'm angry that my letter didn't get delivered. And what if the postal employee says to you, Sir, I hope you'll understand. We deliver 99% of the mail. Please understand that we didn't deliver 1%. You'd be furious. You would expect every piece of mail to be delivered. In the hospitals, the survey writes, 35,000 newborn babies would be dropped by doctors and nurses each year on the floor if there was a 1% failure rate. So can you imagine, you go to the hospital, 
and your baby was dropped and you got angry at the doctor and you said, doctor, you dropped my newborn baby. And the doctor says to you, I'm so sorry, but you've got to understand 99% of the times we hold your baby tight. We just failed in this 1%. You'd be livid. If there was a 1% failure rate of the pharmacies across America, 200,000 people would be getting the wrong drug prescription each year. That's a bit dangerous, don't you think? 200,000 wrong prescriptions dispensed by the pharmacy, but they can always say, I got it right 99% of the time. In the local water utility, if there was a failure rate of 1%, There would be unsafe drinking water three days a year. You're playing Russian roulette with your drinking water. Would you like to play that game? If the food handlers didn't handle your food properly and had a 1% failure rate, 2 million people in America would die from food poisoning each year because the food handler didn't wash their hands. Oh, I'm sorry. I usually wash my hands 99% of the time, but this time I didn't. I'm sorry. Please understand. That wouldn't be acceptable to us. But how is it in the Christian life we say to God, God, understand, 99% of the time I'm living a pretty good life. And I bet you most of you don't even have that high of a percentage. Just the 1%, you got to understand. If you're living that type of life, that is not a life of conviction. A life of conviction is living out the principles of Scripture 100% of the time. Because if you fail once, then it is no longer a conviction. I hope you understand that. If you fail once, it's not a conviction anymore. You've compromised just once. Let's continue with the progression. Look what happens, verse 8. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about Jesus, and he hoped to see some miracles done by him. Herod was pleased. He was excited. He was looking forward to the Jesus show. He wasn't trying to find out if Jesus was innocent or not. Now, he wanted to see some miracles happen. And Jesus knew it. It's always interesting. Herod had three years at any time the opportunity to see Jesus, to meet Jesus, to talk with Jesus while Jesus was up in the area of the Galilee. But he never took the time. But he had heard a lot about Jesus and he wanted to see some miracles. And Jesus knew it. And look what happened, verse 9. Then Herod questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and, and sent Jesus back to Pilate. You know, Herod turns into a little kid. Because Jesus would not perform a miracle for him, would not perform a show, would not answer his question. He pouts like a little child, and he begins to mock Jesus and make fun of Jesus, not very befitting a king. All because Jesus would not yield to his little plan. But more importantly, I want you to look at verse 12. Look what happens. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. They were enemies. But now this happens, and they're BFFs, they're best friends. What happened? How did two enemies become good friends with this Jesus problem? 
Well, it seems like Luke adds this commentary in verse 12, because these are two people who pass the buck, people who defer to each other, perhaps because of their political aspirations. They knew what they should have done, but they didn't do it because they knew it was a political hot potato. Neither of them wanted to take this political hot potato, and so they bonded over the fact that they were both doing the wrong thing together. Imagine that. They became good friends. Perhaps because they'd shared a consultation, they shared a word, they shared a note together, and they both knew that Jesus was innocent, as we're going to see in a few verses. They knew Jesus was innocent, but maybe they had a conference call. And they both realized it would risk their political position if they let Jesus go free. And because of this connivance, they became the best of buddies. They bonded over having no convictions. And that's number two of how you dig a deeper hole for yourself. How the progression of one who has a decision ready at hand to one who makes the wrong one. Number two, you associate with people who also don't have conviction. How do you dig a deep hole that you can't get out of in the area of convictions and compromise? You begin to associate with men and women who don't have any convictions, who are just as cunning as you, who are always also looking for their own benefit, the political angle. And it sounds a lot like Christians I know today. That's what we do all the time. When we do something wrong, what do we do? We try to justify our wrong behavior by pointing to the conduct of others in our minds or vocally. We say to ourselves, well, I'm not so bad. That person did it as well. We do that a lot, don't we? Well, why can't I do that? That person and that person and that leader does the same thing. You haven't aimed your standards very high, have you? And we associate ourselves with people like this who also don't have any of the same convictions. And therefore, what happens? What happens is that nothing good happens. There's a story of a college student who was reprimanded by the school president for misbehavior. And when he was called to the president's office, this young college student offered this lame excuse for his questionable conduct. He said, sir... I'm sure you'd find it difficult to locate 10 men in this college campus who wouldn't have done as I did if they had been in my circumstance. To which the president replied, Young man, has it ever occurred to you that you could have been one of the 10? And that's the same argument we give to God. God, in this corrupt, evil, dark world, I think you'll find it very difficult, even in this church, to find five people or ten businessmen or ten students who would do what's right. And God's answer back to us is, have you ever considered the thought that you could be one of those ten? We don't take a stand because looking around, we don't want to be the one who has to stand up and make the right decision and be tagged as the bad guy, quote-unquote. No one wants to be the bad guy. And that's why we often keep silent, especially in a group, when we know what has to be done or what needs to be said. We're all silent 
Because no one wants to be the bad guy. No one wants to say the right thing. And therefore, in the company of people with no convictions, nothing gets done at all. And I wonder sometimes, even if someone has the audacity and the courage to stand up for what is right, how many of you would chime in and say, I agree with this man. I agree with this woman. I bet you most of us would be thinking, well, you know what? He already said what needed to be said. I just keep quiet. Inside you're saying, yeah, you go, you go. Audibly, nothing happens. I wonder in a very difficult situation, how many of us would be the first to say something or the first simply to sit back? Look in your circles of influence. Look at your group of friends, even in the church. Do you have men and women in your life who will speak truth into your life? Do you have the boldness to tell your friends that they are committing a sin and they are wrong? Do you have friends that will do the same to you? I hope you do. Or is everyone so kicky and so kind to one another that they won't say anything? Do you and your friends have the conviction to speak up for what is right? If not, you're going down the slippery slope of digging a hole deeper for yourself, a hole you may not be able to get out of. The book of Proverbs reminds us that friends are to be as iron, sharpening iron. Do we surround ourselves with men and women who don't have any convictions as well or are not willing to speak up for what they believe is right? Nehru, India's first prime minister, was a Hindu and he was definitely against Christianity in his country. But he was a moderate, and there were many zealous people in his political party that, uh, in the majority Muslim nation that wanted to get rid of the minority Christians. But Nehru offered this advice. He said to them, he said, don't persecute the Christians or they will become strong and they will begin to spread. Instead, wherever you find Christians, group together Build cinemas, build drinking halls, build nightclubs, and build gambling dens. And they will destroy themselves. Nehru was a perceptive man. And that's exactly what happened in India. As those things happened, Christians who didn't stand up for what is right and didn't speak out, although they knew it was wrong, led to the decline of Christianity in India. Do you associate with men and women who have convictions or who do not? Verse 13. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people and indeed have examined him in your presence. I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. Pilate states very clearly to the religious leaders, Herod and I don't find any fault in this man concerning your accusations. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to slap Jesus on the figurative wrist. I'm going to just reprimand him and let him go. 
And that was the right action. The right action was to release Jesus. There was no evidence to hold him. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, the wife of Pilate sends a message to her husband asking him not to condemn Jesus. He should have listened to his wife. Look what happens, verse 18. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who has been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. It is ironic that these Jewish religious leaders would ask for the man Barabbas, who was rightfully convicted of starting an insurrection rebellion and of murder, all of which Jesus had not done. And that's how much they hated Jesus. That's how much they wanted him dead at all costs. Verse 20. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted as saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this done? I found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. I want you to note something here. Three times Pilate wanted to release Jesus. There was no one stopping him. If it takes you three times to do something, you know what? You probably won't do it. If you don't do it the first time, you won't do it the second time. You won't do it the third time. You won't do it the fourth and so on. You see, you dig yourself a deeper hole, number three. When you make a decision not based on convictions, you dig yourself a deeper hole from from where you can't get out When you make decisions that are not based on convictions, Christians do it all the time. Should I sin or not? I shouldn't be doing this. Should I? Let me stop here and tell you. If that thought process begins with the disclaimer, I shouldn't be doing this, but... Or... This is sin, isn't it? You shouldn't be doing it. Did you get that? If it ever crosses your mind whether you should do something or not because it is not right, you shouldn't do it. Because if you begin to question and even pause, then you've already been beaten. If you doubt whether you should do it the first time or not, you've already been beaten. And more than likely, you will do it. It's human nature. Instead of saying, I'm not going to do this because this is wrong, should I do it? Because then you will spend the rest of your life trying to justify why you did it. Three times, Pilate was in all of his full authority to release Jesus. But the fact that he lingered and allowed the voices of the many to influence his decision, he was already beaten the first time. And that's exactly what happens, verse 23. And they were insistent and demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. Would you underline that in your Bible, that phrase? And the voices of these men and the chief priests prevailed. 
I have in my margin next to this phrase, this can happen to me. This can happen to me. The voices of the crowd prevailed. It was too loud. It was too overwhelming. And Pilate was swayed. Do the voices of the majority sway you? Would you walk away from something you know is explicitly wrong because of the voices of the majority? Many of us, unfortunately, including myself, are swayed by the voices of the many. So let's not be too hard on Pilate because in his shoes, we probably would have done the same thing. I forgot the name of the man who wrote this editorial, but in it is great wisdom. He writes, One of the evils of this modern day, if we be any judge, is the scarcity of men and women in places of leadership who are willing to speak their convictions at the risk of popularity. The thought was pointed out the other day when we came across this striking statement, he writes. Every man must fight the evil he sees. If he doesn't oppose it, he accepts it. There is too much of a premium today in just being nice. We lack the courage to strike out at evil in high or in popular places. Acquiescence may be as much a sin as in initiating that sin. Silence certainly gives consent. Esteem, honor, isn't necessarily won by drifting with the crowd. In fact, it seldom is so won. Those who win admiration are those who dare to express their convictions. Those names which have come down through history are the names of men and women who gambled their lives for their convictions. Every man must fight the evil he sees. If he doesn't oppose it, he accepts it. That's so true in our generation today. There's scarcity of men and women who are willing to speak forth their convictions at the risk of popularity because there's so much placed today on the importance of being nice. Think about that. Pilate wanted to please, so he makes a decision completely in contrast to his convictions. And this is what happens, verse 24 and 25. So Pilate gives sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Now Pilate came a long way that night. At the beginning of the evening, he was willing and almost ready to declare Jesus innocent. And somehow, in the course of the evening, he comes in the wee hours of the morning, to the decision to condemn an innocent man to die. Pilate kept digging and digging until his hole was so deep he could not get out of it. And Pilate made one of the worst decisions in the history of mankind. He freed a convicted murderer and condemned an innocent Jesus to die. And that is how Pilate would be remembered throughout history.
every generation he would be remembered as the one who freed a convicted murderer in place of an innocent Jesus. You know, historically, Pilate wasn't even famous. Here he was conniving and manipulating his way to try to win the hearts of the people. History tells us that Pilate was actually recalled back to Rome for being an inefficient leader. Imagine that. They called him back. You're a terrible leader. Come back to Rome. In fact, he was such a bad governor that for years, archaeologists, centuries, could not find any reference to the name Pontius Pilate. And so a lot of people doubted whether he really existed or not. He was so bad, they wiped his name off the books. But recently, within the past hundred years, they found what's called the Pilate Stone. And so that affirms the truth of the scriptures. But here's a man who wanted to be so popular, and because he didn't stand on his conviction, actually gained the worst notoriety of any man in the world, the man who killed Jesus. We live in a very difficult world, I know. We live in a very dark world. And we are in a hole. The world doesn't like us. But would you please stop digging? Would you please stop digging a deeper hole for yourself by not having any convictions, by surrounding yourself with people who don't have convictions, and by making decisions not based on your convictions in the Word of God? Because if you don't, one day you will find out that you have dug a hole so deep that you can't get out of, and your life would be a failure. Stop digging and live out the truths of the Bible. David Wells, in his books, No, no Place for Truth, he argues convincingly that the evangelical church in North America, which is happening here in the Philippines, has lost its theological foundation. It's, it's God-centeredness. Instead of being truth brokers who help their flocks come to know and live in submission to the holy God, pastors of North America have become business managers who market the church, and they become psychologists to help people find personal fulfillment and good feelings. And he points out, very interestingly, that if the Apostle Paul was looking for a pastorate in North America, he would find it very hard-pressed because few churches in North America would hire the Apostle Paul because he had such a hard personality. Most pastors, Wells notes, stands or falls today by their personalities rather than their character. And he argues that the church has blended in with modernity, promoting God and the gospel as just another self-help method. My friends, the scriptures are not here necessarily to make you feel better. The scriptures are to transform you, to change you, to change me. It is our unchanging guide to tell us how to be more Christ-like, to give you a purpose for how you are to live and how I am to live. And if you have no convictions, then you read the Bible and you will begin to have convictions. Because the Bible does not waver in its convictions. It does not change in its biblical truth from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Because one God, through 40 authors, has written, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this Word of God. Poor Pilate never understood what convictions really mean. Compromise of spiritual things. Compromise of truth always leads to failure. I hope it will not be the case in your life. One day, when we get to heaven, 
and we look into the annals of what heaven has recorded about our life. As I read about your life and you read about my life, as the Bible tells us, the books of our lives will be written. What will our biography read like? I hope it will be filled with victory after victory of men and women who stand their ground on their convictions. I hope your story of your life will not read as one who keeps falling into the same hole every time. As one who keeps tripping into the same hole because they never understood what it means to take a stand. I hope your life story is not one pitfall after another pitfall. That you will be filled with victory after victory to the glory of God. One day may that be the case of your life. But until then, I hope you will learn from the life of Pilate. I hope that you will surround yourself with men and women who are full of conviction. It will speak truth into your life. I hope that you will also have convictions from the scriptures that is a tent peg and a pillar in your life and that every decision that you make about your life is based on those things. That's my prayer. That's my appeal to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is a conviction even in my life as well. There are times I waver to the majority crowd, as we all do. There are times I ask the question, should I do this or not, when I know it is blatantly wrong. But I question and I begin to justify wrongly if I should do it or not. I pray that you would forgive us. And I pray that you would raise up this church, all the men and women in it, every young man and young women, to be men and women of conviction, never compromising the truths of the Scripture, that they will have the boldness to go and tell their friends that there is only one way to heaven, that is, in the person of Jesus Christ who died for us, that we would be willing to take a stand that says we don't have to live this life for the accolades of men, but we live this life for the accolade of one, the Heavenly Father that we can have the boldness to speak truth in the lives of our friends when they are doing wrong, and that we would have the boldness not to participate in activities we know are wrong. Give us that courage, Lord. Give us that boldness so that you will be well pleased with our life. Because we are writing the autobiography of our heavenly annals. And may my life and the life of everyone at Grace Christian Church be a story of men and women whose lives go from victory to victory because they one day took a stand and did not compromise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.